I'm the Black Band. Okay, Green, welcome you to another edition of Sports Blues. We're coming up in this edition, Coco and the Joker win in Fletching Meadow. Now America's newest tennis sweetheart and the oldest player to win a title. Come on. Did Bama just get exposed last Saturday against Texas? And is the SEC in real trouble? Ooh, look at Bama's shocking loss at Brian Denny to Texas and what this means for the SEC. The U.S.'s failure in the FIBA World Cup has come to bloom. How they lost to not only Germany, but Canada and failed to medal in the Philippines. We'll take a look at that as well. Should grass be mandatory in NFL stadiums after the disaster that happened to the New York Jets and Aaron Rodgers? We'll take a more detailed look at that. We'll have fat gap, head slap, the Hoodwood High Five, some shakeups in the top five. From the wood, plenty of sports take to get at it. We got a lot of stuff covered, a lot of ground to cover. So put your crash helmets on. Welcome to Seatbelts. It's sports from the hood, we're headed at you. Let's go. so bad that people have been emailing me about it. Why can't we read what Snuffy's got to say? Are you afraid of what the Hoodwood Hound is going to tell you? No. I'll get him a new board. I listen to the people. I listen to my constituents. You can send me an email at kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. I'll tell you every way you can detail to talk to me, to send me emails, to send me X files. I'm still going to move to tribal though. And other ways you can watch the show and listen to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, greetings. If you're listening on a podcast, whatever your podcast pop platform would be, I send you salutations. And I'm glad you uh, took a little time out of your day to join me. I'm your man, KJ Green, welcoming you to another edition of Sports from the Hoodwood. And let's get started with the happenings in Flushing Meadow. Coco. Does it? The 19-year-old phenom defeated Ariana Sabalenka in the final in a great match. 2-6-6-3-6-2 to win the women's singles tennis title at the 2023 U.S. Open. It was first major singles title and golf became the first American teenager to win the title since Serena Williams in 1999. That's some heady company if I do say so myself. Golf overcame numerous errors, faults, fighting her way through the draw to get to the final against the number one player in the world in Sabalenka. And after dropping the first set, fought back gamely to win the next two sets to take the title. And Sabalenka is no slouch. Mm, she's the number one player in the world. But Coco Golf has put her stamp. And where else to do it better in New York City? They say you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And believe you me, when she won that title and just basically collapsed into tears on the baseline, 
And I've got a little bit of a beef with those people that were saying, how come she was praying at the end and she was kneeling at the end? What's wrong with giving thanks for winning the title? Nobody said anything when there are people like Tim Tebow kneeling and praying or whatever. Not like I got any beef with Tebow, so don't even start with me on that. But Coco Golf has shown the kind of resiliency and humbleness that you want an American champion. And when I said in the intro that she's America's newest tennis sweetheart, I wasn't kidding. This is a girl who's easy to embrace. She's fun to watch. She plays with a spirit and a fire that you just can't, just can't ignore. I love watching her play. And I'm telling you, she's cut from the hood with claw. Tough, resilient, and won't back down. Get used to seeing her on the big stage, people, because the girl's only 19 and she's just getting started. Believe you me, you're going to be seeing and hearing that name quite a bit. On the men's side, same old, same old, the Joker, Novak Djokovic, defeating Daniil Medvedev in the final 6-3-7-6-7-5-6-3 to win the men's singles title at the 23 U.S. Open. It was his fourth U.S. title and record-extending 24th men's single title overall, and he equals Margaret Court's all-time record for any player of either sex of major singles titles. Djokovic became the oldest U.S. Open men's singles champion in the open air at 36 years and 111 days by reaching his 47th singles major semifinal. The Joker surpassed Roger Federer's all-time record, and by reaching the final, Djokovic matched Federer's record for reaching all major finals in a season three times. You gotta give it up to the Joker. They keep saying, ah, he's too old. Ah, he's not gonna do. But then he keeps fooling them all and holding more, more, uh, more silverware. He's holding the title again, whether it's Wimbledon, whether it's the U.S. Open, whether it's the Australian Open, whether it's the French Open. It doesn't matter. The Joker is one of tennis's all-time greats. If you couldn't even say he was the GOAT. And when him passing Roger Federer, which a lot of people were saying was the GOAT, to become the, you know, the uh, when he, you know, getting his 47th major single, uh, major single semifinal, and reaching the final again, and winning the final again for the 24th, his 24th major. Think of that number. Jimmy Connors didn't do that. John McEnroe didn't do that. Uh, 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 Andre Agassi. I mean, he passes Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, all of these cats, legends in the game, in the men's game. The Joker stands above them all. And people say, oh, he's got no personality. He's a winner. You can't take that from him. So Hoodwood sends a salute to Coco, who's on the rise, and the Joker, who's standing on top of a mountain, daring anybody to knock him off. And you think anybody's going to knock him off, either one of them off soon? I'm not taking bets against it. I got a question for you. Did Alabama get exposed? I was watching part of the uh, Alabama-Texas game interspersed with watching my beloved Bearcats knock off Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh. But watching this game, 
and Texas playing at Bryant Denny in a rare, rare intersectional game between two powerhouse teams. Because you really don't see Alabama taking on a big name like Texas. And these two teams are going to be conference foes, and, that, and those games are going to be must-see TV every year. But last year, Bama escaped with a 20-19 decision in Austin. And many people thought that this game was going to be a tasty appetizer to a yearly showdown. Now, that was the Tides' only their second win all-time against the Longhorns last year. And, but this year's game and Bryant-Denny, who boy, a lot different. The game started out as a grinder. You know, both teams kind of feeling each other out, kind of punching and counter-punching. But at, it was a tie game in the second quarter. Texas struck with a 44-yard pass from uh, Quinn Edwards to Xavier Worthy and took the lead. Now, a lot of people were thinking, okay, punch, punch, counter punch. Bama was going to have something back, but they couldn't. And they couldn't move the ball against a rugged Texas defense that just kept just hitting Bama in the mouth over and over and over again. And the Bama offense just was not moving. It was 13-6 at the half. And you're thinking, okay, Bama better come up with something if they're going to really pull away from this game. Bama responded, scoring 10 points in the third quarter, taking the lead when Jalen Monroe hit Jermaine Burton with a 49-yard touchdown pass. So you're thinking, fourth quarter, Bama's up 16-13. You know, it's a tight game, but Bama should be able to pull away. So Texas had other ideas, scoring 21 points in the fourth quarter. 100,000 in Bryant-Denny Stadium were sitting there like this. Are you kidding? Is this really happening? Yes, Bama, it's really happening. Texas is for real. Texas rolls out with a 34-24 win in Bryant-Denny. This doesn't happen to Bama. No, you, I mean, in the, in the Nick Saban era, the Crimson Tide have only lost, I'm, I'm going to do it in the uh, uh, principal's voice in, in Ferris Bueller, nine times. Nine. How many times have they won in the Nick Saban era at Bryant-Denny? 110. 110 and nine. Losses, Bama losses are rare, few and far between to begin with. You don't get the Crimson Tide at Bryant-Denny. It just doesn't happen. But Texas walked in like it was up. Well, it ain't no thing. And they slapped around the, the, the Crimson Tide, dominating them, forcing the, the Tide into two turnovers while the Longhorns had none, and piling up 454 yards in offense. You just don't do that to the Tide. Nick Saban looked like a man at a funeral. Is Bama in trouble? Is the SEC as a whole in trouble? Now, we're not talking about Georgia. Georgia's on a level of its own. And until somebody can knock off Georgia, fat chance on that, it's going to be Georgia and the 13 Dwarves. Is Alabama coming back to the pack? Because it used to be Georgia-Alabama, whatever fluke team came out, you know, the rotation, whether it be uh, Mississippi State, uh, Florida, 
South Carolina, Mizzou, Auburn. One of those teams, LSU, comes out of the mix. But you had the big two, and you had the middling, and then you had the chaff underneath. Is Bama coming back to the pack? That is something that Bama fans refuse to hear. And I, I got Bama fans. I got friends, lots of friends who are Bama fans. My, my guy Stace is just in a state of denial. No, 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 no. Bama, Bama's still going to be good. Roll tide. Better recognize. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it was a special team in Texas. That team is built for speed. That team is built to hit you in the mouth. They can play smash mouth football. They can grind on you, but they can also air it out. Now, the Red River shootout in a couple, in a few weeks down there in Dallas is going to be fun to watch. Even though I'm hoping that my Bearcats can upset Oklahoma, you might very well have an unbeaten Texas and an unbeaten Oklahoma squaring off in the Red River shootout the Cotton Bowl. That's going to be must-see TV. These are going to be the two new guys going into the SEC next year. Is Bama and the rest of the SEC in trouble because you got two heavyweights coming in and they're not going to be nice? They're looking to drink your liquor from an old fruit jar and make themselves right at home. And the SEC might not be equipped to handle it. Hey, let's take our first time out. Come back with two more items on the docket. Is the U.S. failure in the FIBA World Cup a portion of things to come? Or was it just a bad day in the Philippines? And we'll investigate, should grass be mandatory in NFL stadiums? given the catastrophic injury of Aaron Rodgers last Monday night. Sportsman Hoover comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com Last week was a little bit ragged. There was some editing issues and a lot of computer problems I was fighting through. So the product may have came through a little bit ragged. I'm trying to endeavor to make sure we have a cleaner, crisper product going forward. And one of the issues was the Feeble World Cup was going on when I was taping and editing. And I taped a segment talking about my confidence in the U.S getting at least to the final. I didn't think they might win, but at least they get to the final. Well, there's a small problem. Well, actually, it was two small problems. One of them was Germany. The U.S. men's national team did not medal in the FIBA World Cup. 
losing a 113-111 thriller to the, to the German team in the semifinals, and then losing to their now sudden nemesis of Canada, 127-118, in the third place game. Now this, the U.S.-Canada um, teams are fast becoming real rivals, and Canada is starting to becoming that team that is not going to be the little brother, brother pushover that the U.S., is taking them for granted to be. Now, this is the Canadians' first medal of any kind of some sort of international uh, competition since 1930. Think about that. How far back it's been since the Canadian basketball team has even been considered worthy enough to medal. Now, the U.S., for their part, finishing fourth, they roared through their, uh, their group stage when they took that loss to Lithuania, many people thought maybe it's a bad portion of things to come. But then they bounced back to whip Italy in the, in the round of six, in the round of eight, and you thought, okay, they're gonna be okay. Yeah, the, the team was a little bit undersized. Yeah, they had problems with you know height. Teams that were were bigger and more dominant rebounded. The German team killed them on the boards. The Canadian teams repeatedly went to the boards time and again and bullied the U.S. men's national team off the boards. You don't see a team, a U.S. basketball team, being pushed around on the boards that way. But the U.S. team was. Now, I'm not, let's keep it 100. The U.S. didn't send their super best team to the tournament. I mean, you didn't have Steph Curry, you didn't have Kevin Durant, you didn't have LeBron James. Those are three of the big names that you're pretty sure are going to be going to Paris next year. And I am utterly confident that a full complement of top-line U.S. stars, because this team, while good, had a lot of B-squatters on it. I mean, you're starting for the U.S. men's national team, but you're not starting for your NBA team. Come on now. And I take nothing away from Steve Kerr, who did a as about as good a job as coaching an undersized team as he did to get them to the set to the semis, though they lost the semis, then lost the third place game, because they were undersized. This was a team that did not have the kind of size and rebounding prowess that most US teams have. And you take nothing away from the Germans, you take nothing away from the Canadian team. Those teams were looking, gunning for the U.S. to take them down. They looked at this game as a statement game, a game that could prove that they were worthy to be on the national stage, or I should say the national stage, the world stage, with the U.S. Now, the U.S. is still the world's most dominant team, but you have teams from Spain, you have teams from Serbia, you have teams from Germany who won the World Cup, with an 83-77 win over Serbia. You have teams like Canada, not to mention some of these South American teams that are still tough to deal with. The U.S. had better take care, take, take care, because these are teams that are gonna be gunning for them in Paris. And oh, there's also a French team that's looking for some, looking to, uh, to get a little bit of, uh, exact some revenge. The U.S. team had better send its best to Paris, and they better train and prepare like these teams are their, are their equals, not somebody to look down on. Too often, the U.S. team has looked down on the rest of the world and taken its status as the most dominant basketball team in the world for granted. 
since the teams have been able to allow have been allowed to send NBA teams since 1992, the U.S. has won the gold medal in 92, 96, 2000. We're not even going to talk about 2004, but then 8, 12, 16, and then in 21. I'm saying 21 because of Tokyo Games, because of the pandemic, but you already knew that. But you look at that. How many times the U.S. team has won the gold medal in the Olympics? This might be the deepest team that the U.S. men's national team has had to face. And like I said, they better take care because there are a number of teams that are gunning for them to take them down. Okay, check it out. Now, I am an admitted Vikings fan, and I was glad to see longtime Vikings tormentor Aaron Rodgers get traded from the Packers to the Jets. He was somebody that I was glad to not see on the schedule going forward in the near future, especially since the Vikings and the Jets played just last year. That said, I was curious to see how he would play in Gotham, and he, he did exactly like his predecessor, Brett Favre did, who jumped from the Packers to the Jets. He was traded in uh, 2006 to make room for one Aaron Rodgers. Um, but unlike Favre, who played one season in New York before forcing his way to Minnesota, Rodgers' career in Jet Green and White was ever so brief. He ruptured his Achilles. Four plays into the game. Four plays into the Jet career. And he's out for the season with a ruptured Achilles tendon. Now, I know that Achilles tendons and Achilles, Achilles injuries, I should say, are one that every player in every sport fears worse than a knee injury. I mean, the, the injury is nine-month minimum recovery time. And there's no real way to accelerate said recovery. Now, J.K. Dubbins of the Ravens also suffered the same type of injury. And with a runner, it's a lot harder for him to get the cutback speed and acceleration that the Achilles tendon is so critical in providing. The NFLPA has increased its calls to the NFL to mandate grass in all of its 30 venues. At present, it's about half and half. 15 teams play on grass fields in their venues and 17 teams play on turf. Now keep in mind that both LA and New York teams both play on field turf. Uh, field turf is a little bit more forgiving and giving than the old plastic AstroTurf. I played on AstroTurf before in different venues, and it's very, very unforgiving. And field turf has a little bit more give to it, but not like grass does. Now, it used to be that uh, teams in multi-purpose venues use turf to save groundskeeping costs. Though I did think it was kind of cool to see dirt from baseball configurations like Oakland, San Diego, and Miami during the football season. Ironically, those two that I mentioned no longer have football teams, and the latter is baseball team move from a multi-purpose venue, um, the now-known moniker as Hard Rock Stadium, used to be Joe Robbie Stadium, where the Marlins played at, 
And the Marlins now play in their stadium, which is on the site of the former Orange Bowl, which was a football stadium where the Dolphins played at, but no baseball team played there. Um, it's not an inside-outside thing. As a lot of people who are talking about turf and grass would have you believe, State Farm Stadium in Arizona and Allegiant Stadium are both indoor facilities in uh, Arizona and Las Vegas, respectively. They still play on grass. They move the fields outside using a like out of a, a track system that moves the grass to the outside adjacent of the stadium where it can get sun and rain with little wet water it does get and be able to dry out. They can move it inside and outside for, for games in, as they need to. Both teams play on grass. Majority of these fields use a strain of Kentucky bluegrass and Bermuda grass on their and certain strains of Bermuda grass for their venues. One of the newest stadiums to implement artificial turf is Nissan Stadium in Nashville, home of the Titans, who switched out grass for turf in this past offseason. So what's the solution? There really isn't one, to be honest. The NFL as a collective really doesn't care about field conditions as long as the individual teams and they leave it to they continue to ignore. Let me try that again. The NFL as a collective really continues to ignore the issue, leaving it to the individual teams and venues. Teams are always eager to save money and cut corners and will do as they please. Some are conscientious about playing on real grass. Some don't care. Some, like LN, the New York and LA-based teams, don't want the extra work of having to configure their grass fields for the team that's playing at home. Players are going to continue to get hurt on these fields, and the NFL will simply shrug and say next, man. Let's take a timeout. Come back with the NFL Week 2 picks. I'm saying it's better than the 8-8 record I had from last week. We'll see if I can do better. Sports from Hoodwood comes back at you.
back in the Hoodwood. My name's KJ Green, and as we get into the NFL Week 2 picks and looking back at Week 1, that's really not how I wanted to start this season. A lot of my picks went south, and I should have really known better than to trust the Giants against the Cowboys in any capacity. Folks have had the GM's number for a number of years now. That's why, but that's why I do the upset of the week. But 40 to nothing? Jeez Louise, come on, G-Man. Y'all gotta do better than that. But like the old Howard Jones song goes, things can only get better, and I will endeavor to that end. Once again, for your review, perusal, and approval are this week's NFL picks with odds being provided by ESPN for entertainment and comparison purposes only. I say that because if you bet the lines and lose, that's your own fault. I don't pay bookies. And I won't hesitate to rat you out if you're hiding somewhere. Let's get started with the games of Sunday, September 17th. This is a CBS doubleheader weekend. Check your local listings for times and games in your area. You can also consult 506sports.com. They have an excellent coverage map of the games that are being shown both early and late. Let's get started with the 1-0 Packers taking on the 1-0 Falcons at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Packers are 1.5-point favorites. Last week, Packers defeated the Bears 38-20, while the Falcons defeated the Panthers 24-10. Fast fact is always at the bottom of the screen. You can consult that, but I will not hesitate to tell you that the Falcons win last week, gave them their first winning record since the end of the 2017 season. Now, the Jordan Love era in Green Bay got off to a rousing start as the Pack's newly installed signal caller was crisp and efficient in an easy win on the midway. They take their act further south to face a Falcons team that looks surprisingly sharp in their home opener against the Panthers. I still have a hard time believing that either team is as good as their opening game would show them to be. In this battle of young gun quarterbacks, I'm looking at the Falcons showing continued improvement and better be moving the ball, better at moving the ball against the Packers, often suspect defense than the sad sack Bears were. The pick here is Atlanta. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Raiders at the 0-1 Bills, being, game being played at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS, the Bills are 9.5-point favorites. Last week, the Raiders defeated the Broncos 17-16, while the Bills lost to the Jets 22-16 in overtime. Now, the fast fact is the Raiders looked to open their season with two straight road wins for the first time since 1982. Now, the Raiders outslugged the Broncos in the mountains and continued east to face an angry Bills team that looked all out of sorts in overtime to their downstate divisional rivals. Now, while Josh Allen stunk up the joint in a three-pick, one-fumble-loss effort, I don't think that's indicative of his overall play. Meanwhile, I think the Raiders did it with mirrors in making the Broncos look bad. Western team headed east for an early game is more often than not a dead team walking. And I think the Bills are looking to take their anger out on somebody. The Raiders are in trouble. The pick here is Buffalo. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Ravens taking on the 0-1 Bengals at Pecor Stadium in Cincinnati, 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Bengals are 3.5-point favorites. Last week, the Ravens defeated the Texans 25-9, while the Bengals lost to the Browns 24-3. The fast fact is Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow had a career-low 82 yards passing in the Week 1 loss to the Browns. 
Now, the Ravens looked sharp and expected dismantling of the Texans. They head to Cincy to face a bitter divisional rival who looked asleep at the switch in a lackluster opener in Cleveland. Now, while the Ravens are looking for a capable replacement for the out for the season J.K. Dobbins, the Bengals are looking to get everybody on the same page. The Bengals really don't need to climb out of another 0-2 hole, especially with two divisional losses and two teams to be have to get past for a playoff berth. If ever there was a desperate time for the Bengals and a stand-and-deliver performance for Joe Burrow, it has already arrived. I honestly don't know how they're going to do it, but I think the Bengals will find a way to scratch out an ugly home opener win. I hope I don't regret this. The pick here is Cincinnati. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Seahawks taking on the 1-0 Lions at Ford Field in Detroit. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Lions are 5.5 point favorites. Last week, the Seahawks lost to the Rams 30-13, while the Lions defeated the Chiefs 21-20. Fast fact here is that Lions quarterback Jared Goff has thrown 359 passes without an interception. Now, the Seahawks looked extraordinarily ordinary in a sloppy, embarrassing home loss to the heretofore thought weakling Rams. Meanwhile, the Lions are pinching themselves as they take on the unexpected role of, role of solid home favorite after a good, gritty opening night win over the defending champ Chiefs on the road. The Lions are Fast becoming a team that no one wants to deal with, and the Seahawks' uneven offense going east for an early game is a recipe for disaster for the road team. I hope my sudden confidence in the Motor City Kitties don't doesn't come back to bite me. The pick is Detroit. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Chargers taking on the 0-1 Titans at Nissan Stadium in Nashville. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Chargers are three-point favorites. Last week, the Chargers lost to the Dolphins 36-34, while the Titans lost to the Saints 16-15. The fast fact here is that Chargers have scored 81 points in their last three games, 34, 30, and 28 respectively, and have lost all three. Now, the Chargers lost another shootout and head east to face a Titans team that hasn't really looked all proficient and moving the ball or scoring points. Their offense won't face the world-beating LA defense, but they usually make bad defenses look good. And while their defense can slow down an offense finding its rhythm, as they did with the Saints, the Chargers offense can score points. Herbert, Eckler, and company will put up points, but this time it won't be a fruitless effort. And I still have my doubts about West Coast teams headed east, but I will overlook it this time because I think the Chargers are better. The pick here is Los Angeles. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Bears taking on the 1-0 Buccaneers at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Bucks are two and a half point favorites. Last week, the Bears lost to the Packers 38-20, while the Buccaneers defeated the Vikings 20-17. A fast fact here is the Bears have won six of the past ten meetings, but the Buccaneers have won seven of the ten meetings at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. Now, the Bears look every bit of the sad sack they were in the 22, uh, 2022 season, and they take their sad sack act further south to face a Bucks team that looks surprisingly sharp in a road win in Minnesota. Justin Fields looked good at times and other times struggled, and I still have a hard time believing that either team is as good as opening game would show them to be. I don't trust either quarterback, to be perfectly honest, and I think Baker Mayfield continues his surprisingly efficient play. 
but and the Bucks defense may mince me of a decent Vikings offense on the road and will have an easier time with the Bears offense that is still struggling to find its identity. Bucks continue to play well and will be off to a stronger start than they were last year when they won the division. The pick here is Tampa Bay. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Chiefs taking on the 1-0 Jaguars at Everbank Stadium in Jacksonville. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Chiefs are three-point favorites. Last week, the Chiefs lost to the Lions 21-20, while the Jaguars defeated the Colts 31-21. Now, the fast fact is the Chiefs are looking to become the first 0-2 defending Super Bowl champs since the 99 Denver Broncos. Now, the Chiefs look all out of sorts in their home opener and let a good Lions team off the hook in a fall-apart sloppy fourth quarter. They get no respite as they face a Jags team that they knocked out of the playoffs last year and one that picked themselves off the deck from a third-quarter deficit to rally smartly on the road in Indy last week. Now, the Chiefs will be cheered by the return of tight end Travis Kelsey, former Bearcat, and on the offense, and defensive tackle Chris Jones on the offense. Now, will this be enough to offset a high-powered Jags offense bolstered by the addition of Calvin Ridley, who is giving the Jags offense an added dimension of speed and playmaking that makes them a frightening matchup? I think this is the best matchup of the early games, and while the Jags will give the Chiefs all they can handle, I think that the Chiefs win a thriller. The pick here is Kansas City. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Colts, taking on the 0-1 Texans at NRG Stadium in Houston, 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Texans are favored by 1.5 points. Last week, the Texans lost to the Ravens 25-9, while the Colts lost to the Jaguars 31-21. Fast fact is one reason why the Colts struggled in their week one loss was their inability to convert on third and fourth down, going to combine three of 17, two of 12 on third down, and one and one of five on fourth down. Another matchup of young guns on tap as C.J. Stroud of the Texans hosts Anthony Richardson of the Colts. Both look decent in their maiden games as signal callers, but neither could lead their respective squads to wins. Now, the Colts' puny running game looks like it'll be a real issue without Jonathan Taylor, and the young but aggressive Texas defense will look to exploit this and put pressure on Richardson from the jump. Stroud, however, has an ace in the hole with Damian Pierce, who I think will be the real difference in a grinder of a game. Texans should be able to get by at home to pick his Houston. Take a timeout. Come back with the rest of the early games as well as the late games, Sunday and Monday night games. Sports Hoover rolls on after this. Hi everyone, I'm KJ Green. If you're looking to reach a broad audience for your advertising dollar, make no further than where you are. We advertise right here in the Hoodwood. If you need spots created as well, Black Brand Productions Enterprises create commercial content that drives sales and gets results. And send your inquiries to ads. BlackBanderProductions.com BlackBanderProductions and Enterprise Sounds, ideas and images 21st century tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, 
your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood. Let's continue with the NFL Week 2 picks. Next on the docket, we start with the late games. This is the 1-0 49ers taking on the 1-0 Rams at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. 4:05 kickoff on Fox. The 49ers are 7.5-point favorites. Last week, the 49ers defeated the Steelers 35-7, while the Rams defeated the Seahawks 30-13. The fast fact here is that the Niners have won eight straight regular season games against the Rams. The Rams' lone win against the Niners in this stretch has been the 2021 NFC Championship game, the playoff game. Now, both teams are coming off of stunning uh, road wins at historically tough venues. The Niners thrashed the Steelers in Pittsburgh. Brock Purdy made it look embarrassingly easy. Meanwhile, the Rams shocked the Seahawks in Seattle and really didn't even break a sweat. Which team continues its early role? I don't trust the Rams. Even at home and even after an impressive road beating that they laid on the Seahawks. Why? Because I believe the Niners on both sides of the ball are light years better. And while I don't think that much of Brock Purdy, I think he has more tools at the ready than the agent Matthew Stafford. And that the Niners defense is lights out. The Niners are the guests that no one wants to see at the present. Pick here is San Francisco. Next on the docket, we have the 0-1 Giants taking on the 0-1 Cardinals at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. 4 or 5 kickoff on Fox. The Giants are 4.5 point favorites. Last week, the Giants lost to the Cowboys 40 to nothing, while the Cardinals lost to the Commanders 20 to 16. The fast fact is the Cards have faced the Giants more than any other team in the NFL. This is the 129th meeting between the two teams. That was bad enough that the G-Men got poleaxed at home by their hated divisional rivals, but to have it done in front of a primetime audience was no less galling. And that was just a bad, bad way to start the season. Now, the Cardinals were expected to stink up the joint earlier in the day in the nation's capital, but they played the commander surprisingly tough and an honorable four-point loss. Now, the G-Men had better take care that they do not look at this as an easy road win as the Cardinals have always been a tough draw at home. That said, the G-Men are the better team and should slog through a road win. But the Cardinals will not make it easy to pick as the New York Giants. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Jets taking on the 1-0 Cowboys at AT&T Stadium at Arlington, Texas. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Cowboys are nine-point favorites. The uh, Last week, the Jets defeated the Bills 22-16, while the Cowboys defeated the Giants 40 to nothing. Fast fact that the Cowboys notched an NFL high of seven sacks. Now, the Pokes walked tall and Stunning beatdown of the Giants in Gotham in primetime. Now head home, face Jets, team that pulled out a gritty win despite the loss of their marquee leader four plays into the season. Now the Jets will try to make every game a slugfest from here on out, grinding it out with their running game and keeping the passing of Zach Wilson to a controlled pace. The Jets will have their hands full with the free-willing Mike Parsons and the Jets' defense will get an early stern test from the big play capabilities of the Polk's offensive specialist, led by Dak Prescott, C.D. Lamb. This was supposed to be a marquee matchup with Dak Prescott facing off Aaron Rodgers, but with Aaron Rodgers no longer there, the big names that will start in this matchup will all have the star on their helmet. The pick here is Dallas, and it's the Hoodwood Lock of the Week. Next on the docket, we have the 1-0 Commanders taking on the 0-1 Broncos at Empower Field in Mile High in Denver. 
425 kickoff on CBS. The Broncos are three and a half point favorites. Last week, the Commanders defeated the Cardinals 20 to 16, while the Broncos defeated the Raiders 17 to 16. Now, the fast fact is the Broncos have never lost back-to-back -back home games to start a season in their club's 60-plus year history. Now, the Commanders made it tough, but grinded out an ugly win against the Cardinals to start the season. Meanwhile, everything could have went wrong, did go wrong for the Broncos in a lackluster home loss to their hated Vegas rivals. The Broncos' offense should be cheered by the fact that they will not have to deal with stellar commander's defensive end Chase Young. If the Broncos can keep Russell Wilson upright like they did against the Raiders, he was only sacked twice, I think that they have a good chance of squeaking out the win. That said, I just for, for some reason cannot see the commanders going on the road, especially to Denver, and pulling out a win. Sooner or later, the Broncos will get back to being tough at home and not make me look like a schnook for picking them. Here I go again. The pick here is Denver. Sunday night game is the 1-0 Dolphins taking on the 0-1 Patriots at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Mass. 8-20 kickoff on NBC. The Dolphins are three-point favorites. Last week, the Dolphins defeated the Chargers 36-34, while the Patriots lost to the Eagles 25-20. Fast fact here is the Dolphins' 536 total yards were the most by any team in a Week 1 game since the Ravens' 643 yards in 2019, which is ironically against those very same Miami Dolphins. Now, the Sunday Nighter is a fascinating matchup with high-powered Dolphins' offense facing their bitter divisional rivals in the Patriots in Foxborough. Pat's defense kept Eagles offense more or less in check for most of the day before crumbling late. I want to know what answers that Belichick is going to have to try to slow down this multifaceted off, uh, offense that the Dolphins present. Tyreek Hill is nearly unstoppable when he gets the ball and Jalen Waddle is really coming into his own. This is giving Tua Takabailoa a host of weapons to run up yardage and points. I don't think the Pats have the chops to slow them down enough, even at home, the pick here is Miami. Let's turn to the Monday game, shall we? Double uh, two games, not a double header, but two games on tap. The first of these games is the 1-0 Saints taking on the 0-1 Panthers, the game being played at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, 7-15 kickoff on ESPN and ESPN2. Saints are three-point favorites. Last week, the Saints defeated the Titans 16-15, while the Panthers lost to the Falcons 24-10. Fast fact here, the Panthers have won three of the last four and can even the overall series with win. Now, the Saints won a grinder in their home opener and head to Charlotte to face the Panthers in their home opener. Saints QB wide receiver combo of Derek, uh, Derek Carr and Chris Olave have clicked well and showed potential to be a real offensive weapon for for the black and gold. Meanwhile, the Panthers are going to have to live with the growing pains of rookie Bryce Young, who looked decent at times against the Falcons, but is still just figuring it all out. This is not a good time to do that with the Saints defense that is looking mighty stingy. The pick here is New Orleans. Final game of week two is the 1-0 Browns, taking on the 0-1 Steelers at Accrazier Stadium in Pittsburgh. 8-15 kickoff on ABC. The Browns are two and a half point favorites. Fast fact here, before I get to that, try it again. Last week, the Browns defeated the Bengals 24-3, while the Steelers lost to the 49ers 35-7. 
fast fact here is the Steelers are 22 and 2 against the Browns at Accurator Stadium, Neheinz Field, and are 21 and 1 over the last 20 years. The Browns thumped their despised downstate rivals and looked to do the same against another longtime tormentor in the Steelers. The Browns look rugged on both sides of the ball, which cannot be said the same for the home team who fell into a hole early against an aggressive 49ers defense and spent the majority of the afternoon trying fruitlessly try to dig out of an increasing deficit. I don't think Kenny Pickett is the long-term answer for the Steelers, to be honest, and unless they can establish a credible run game with Najee Harris, who has historically played well against the Browns, the Steelers might be looking up at their longtime punching bag in more ways than one. The pick here is Cleveland, and I'm calling this upset of the week. And Thursday's quick pick is the Giants against the 49ers. That's going to be at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, California, 8:15 on Amazon Prime. The 49ers are nine and a half point favorites. I will have the pick as San Francisco. There you have it. Last week and overall, I'm 8-8 with the lock being correct and the upset being incorrect. I just want to know, upset 0-1. We will take our final timeout, come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dap, and Head Slap, as well as the final word from the Hood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say, standing in complete solidarity with everyone, thank you. Nonsense commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now live in living color, black by popular demand, your host, KJ Green. Running third and headed for home here in the Hoodwood. We'll finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dap, Head Slap, and the final word from the Wood. The Hoodwood Hot Five, as been the want lately, is the top five teams that I think are the best teams in the country. Not necessarily the AP top five or the writers top five, but the top five is determined by me. We'll start with the team that dropped out of the Hoodwood Hot Five, which was Alabama, who's now one and one. They were the third ranked team last week, but after losing to Texas 34-24, they are out. 
Their next game is at South Florida. A uh, kind of a curious game. You didn't expect them to be playing a team like South Florida in the uh, from the American in Tampa. Not a uh, gimme home game. It's a, a rare road non-conference game for the Crimson Tide. So now let's get to the Hoodwood Hot Five. Our fifth ranked team in the Hoodwood Hot Five, maintaining its rank of number five, is the Florida State Seminoles. They are 2-0 after defeating the Southern Miss Golden Eagles 66-13. Their next game is at Boston College in their ACC opener. Our number four ranked team is the aforementioned Texas Longhorns, who are new to the rankings at 2-0 after defeating Alabama 34-24. Their next home game is against Wyoming. Our third-ranked team, moving up from number four, is the third-ranked USC Trojans. The Trojans defeating, Stan defeating Stanford's 56-10 for their first conference win. They are 3-0. Their next game is at Arizona State in Tempe. Our second-ranked team is the Michigan Wolverines, who are 2-0, maintaining their spot at number two. After defeating UNLV 35-7, their next game is against Bowling Green, their third of four straight home games. And our top-ranked team remains, number one last week, number one this week, the Georgia Bulldogs, who are 2-0 after defeating Ball State 45-3. Their next game is their conference home opener against South Carolina. That's the Hoodwood Hot Five. That's my Hot Five. What's yours? And now moving on to our Fat Dap and Head Slap of the Week. Our Fat Dap goes to Kyle Schwarber, outfielder for the Philadelphia Phillies. When Matt Olson of the Atlanta Braves became only the second Brave in team history to hit 50 home runs in a season with his second blast of the night at Citizens Bank Ballpark in Philly on Tuesday. Most people figured that the ball would just disappear into the crowd of fans who would, were jockeying for the ball. But Philly's outfielder Kyle Schwarber got the ball back for Olsen by trading it for another game ball and to the person who caught made that catch of the ball uh, that Olsen hit. Olsen was very appreciative, telling Justin Toscano of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, I respect that from him. It was a classy move by not only Schwarber for taking the time to get the ball back and throwing it back to the Braves' dugout for Olsen as a keepsake, but to the fan who gave the ball back, realizing that the inherent worth would be more to Olsen than it would be to him. Fat dap to Kyle Schwarber and a thoughtful Philly fan, for a classic move. Our head slap of the week goes to Betty Impresario DraftKings with a 9-11 themed parlay bet. Truly tasteless. Now the Boston-based company offered users a 9-11 themed promotion that required all three New York-based teams, the Yankees, Mets, and Jets, to win their games on Monday, September 11th, which was Patriots Day. And I, I'm i one of those type of people that I don't get sentimental on things, but I do think that there are certain things that just do not need to be um, 
used for any kind of hype or promotional uh, material. And coincidentally, the Mets lost. The Yankees, Red Sox were postponed and the Jets did win their game. But of the three New York-based teams, only the Jets won, so the parlay wouldn't have paid out anyway, which I think it was just as right. Head slap to DraftKings for a truly tasteless move. And now, without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. Somebody make it make sense. The Vikings, Alexander Madison, after a poor showing on the Thursday night football game against Philadelphia Eagles, received some 60 racist and vitriol-filled messages on his Twitter's X account. The purpose of these um, tweets and messages were all mostly the same. You suck. You should kill yourself. But all that, many of them were filled with vile and vicious language that I won't even begin to try to repeat here. Alexander Madison is the starting running back for the Minnesota Vikings, my favorite team. And the fact that he had to take this to his coach, the NFL was alerted about this. And they came out with the usual rhetorical, we don't stand for this, and that this has no place in the game language. I made a comment on Facebook saying that any play, any um, so-called fan, and I won't call them a fan, I call them, refer to them as scum, anyone who would do that was definitely not a Vikings fan and had no right to use the word skull in any kind of greeting if they were going to treat one of their players that way. I've often wondered, being someone being that has a public forum like this, what it is like to get hate mail and vitriol that is sickening. And I've gotten some. I've done this podcast a little over 11 years. And people don't agree with my opinion. People don't like what I say. And they will tell me where to stick it. And I could care less. Someone tells me they don't like my my podcast, I say don't watch it. And the few people that do watch it, I'm very grateful that they do. But when it comes to people who are higher public standard, higher public setting than I am, a football player, for example, having to take that kind of nasty racist and ugly commentary to what amounted to poor play is unacceptable and it should never be part of the fan experience. If I like a player, I root for them. If I don't like a player, I either ignore them or I might boo them. But never would I insult their color, creed, nationality, any sexuality or anything like that, because the, the latter is definitely none of my business and none of my concern, and that's nothing to do with the game. People who do stuff like that aren't fans. 
I know fan being short for fanatic. They're not fanatics. I refer to them as scum because they are doing nothing for the game. They're not cheering a player or booing a player. They're being derisive, derogatory, and downright mean. And that has no place in the game. People who do that show and demonstrate that they have nothing better to do with their time. Nothing better to do than to harass and harangue a person just because of what way they played or did not play. That has no place in the sport, regardless of what sport it is. Baseball, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, whatever. Racism and racist language and rhetoric have no place in the game. They have no place in fandom. And the people that did that deserve to be exposed and ridiculed for the stupidity that they bring. Things like that are just something that would just take away from the full fan experience. And again, as I've said numerous times, has no place in the game. And that is the final word from the wood. Now, with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And I thank you so much for your visit. Now, the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Audio and Films Production.